Open your Bibles again to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 9. We are almost at 100 sermons, I think 96 or so, through this point in the book of Romans, and we just finished half the book. And we're coming up to a section that is critically important for our understanding. This is a section of three chapters that some have termed some of the most difficult passages in the whole Bible. And I trust that it's going to be a great journey for us just opening up our Bibles and rolling up our sleeves and studying this together. Let me read uh, the first five verses, which will set in context what we're going to be talking about this morning. Romans 9, verse 1 says this. Paul, writing to the Italians at Rome, says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and I have an unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service and the promises whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God-blessed Forever. Amen. To be a faithful Christian is to be one who understands the Bible, specifically understands your Bible. If you were to open to the table of contents of your Bible and peruse its its uh, list there, if you were to show that to anyone, you would notice one thing immediately, and that is the Bible breaks down into two major sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let me ask you a question. If you were in a fourth grade Sunday school class and uh, someone raised their hand and said, Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so, why is there an Old Testament and why is there a New Testament? And what's the difference? Would you have a good answer? What what would you say? How how would you answer that? The heart of the answer of that question is the subject of Romans 9 and 10 and 11. What about the Old Testament? What about Israel? What about the Jews? What about all of those 39 books in the Old Testament? And how do they relate to the 27 in the New What's the connection? What we do here at Mission Road Bible Church is uh, we're, we're, we're a Bible church. We're, I like to call us a next verse church. We're studying the book of Romans, and we're going to study every verse in the whole book. And when we finish a certain verse, we'll go to the next verse and keep going until we finish all the way through. I think that's the best way to study the Bible because it's, it's taking God's word as he revealed it. It's unpacking the mind of God as he thought it and spoke it and, and gave it to the, the men who wrote the book. It's to follow his mind. It's to trace the speaking of the Holy Spirit. 
That means when you're a consecutive expositor or you're setting forth a meaning of text verse by verse, that you can't ever skip a section. You don't get the chance of the opportunity of saying, well, this, this one's going to, this is a bunt, not a single, this is not, not a double, this is not a triple, this is not a home run passage. I have to take this passage. You, you don't get to choose your passage. Your passage chooses you. And as a church, as we're studying Romans 9, excuse me, uh, the book of Romans, Romans 9 through 11 has chosen us over the next few months. But I want to persuade you that if you're diligent to think deeply, to think very diligently, to track with Paul's argument, I think you're going to find unmeasurable blessings in these next three chapters. But I want to tell you, it's hard, and there are hard things. There are difficult things to swallow. There are things that are going to make you rise up and say, how can Paul say that? Did God really say that? How can I believe that? You're going to say, are you sure that that said that, Rick? The question is rarely do we understand as much as it is will we receive it. This section, honestly, is not that difficult to understand what Paul is saying. But it contains some sections that are very difficult to actually receive and accept at face value, which is exactly where Paul gives them to us. Now, let's remember where we are. Paul is building an argument in the book of Romans. Romans is like a, it's like a court case. He's, he's laying out before Jews and Gentiles to let us know how in the world one can become righteous before God being born and pursuing unrighteousness our whole lives. How can we be made right before God when we can't deal with the sin in our past and, and erase it or perfect ourselves moving forward in the future? How, how can we become righteous before God? So... Chapters 1 through 8 describes that. That's the first big chunk of Romans. Now, there are subdivisions in Romans uh, 1 through 8, but the first big chunk function as an explanation of the good news of God, the new covenant, the gospel itself of Jesus as the Savior of all who would believe, given to us, and what the theological understanding of his life, death, burial, and resurrection mean for us and mean to God. It's a clear explanation of that. It's a clarion call. It is so crystal clear that God saves sinners on behalf of his son who died in their stead instead of them as their substitute to receive the wrath of God that we deserve and secure that by raising from the grave after being executed. In chapter 1, Paul says, all the Gentiles were condemned from the day we were born. The non-Jews were in trouble with God because we were born with a stiff arm in God's face. We have exercised every possible nuance of our depravity. And just when uh, the Jews started thinking, well, that's good because that's not us, in chapter 2, Paul says, oh, well, it's you too. In fact, you are worse because you not only had the law of God to regulate against that, you actually practice those things and give approval to people who do those things as well. In chapter 3, he says, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. There's no one who is righteous, not even one. And at the end of chapter 3, he says, man can be justified by grace through faith alone in Christ. And that's the only name by which anyone will ever come to the Father. Chapter 4, he explained that this is the way people have always been saved, by grace through faith. And he goes back to use Abraham as the example of that. In chapter 5, he says... We inherited our sin from Adam, and everyone subsequent to Adam has inherited that sin, and, 
and the natural born sinners. We are born to sin. We can't, we're not born neutral. And yet Jesus is the second Adam who gives new life. And then chapter 6 and 7 talks about our fight against our sin after you come to Christ. Chapter 8 is that great and glorious truth of the Spirit of God's work in our life. And that God has chosen us, God will secure us, God is for us and not against us. And nothing, no power on heaven or earth could ever come against those who've been beloved by God. At the end of chapter 8 though, you could be asking a question, especially if you were a Jew. And that is, well, what, what, what about the Old Testament? There was no Old Testament at this point. There was just the scriptures. The, the older 39 books. What are we to make of this term, the new covenant that Jesus talks about? The new covenant, the new promise. What about the old promises to Israel? That's what these next three chapters of Romans answers. Had Paul ended the book of Romans after chapter 8, we could have been left with the idea that God was finished with Israel and started something new. He had turned the page of the Old Testament, opened up the New Testament, and said, out with the old, that's Israel, in with the new, that's the church, and let's never look back at the nation of Israel again. But the question must be begged, have the promises that God made to Israel been made null and void by the gospel? In other words, did he take a big eraser and erase the Old Testament in the way he dealt with man and with a marker began writing something new in the New Testament? Nothing could be farther from the truth. And that's what Paul is going to answer. Can you just sneak a peek over at chapter 11, verse 1? Just, just look for a brief moment. We'll get here eventually. Paul, in the crescendo of his argument, says this. I say then, God has not rejected his people, that is Israel, has he? That's the question. That's the question we're left with. If we're given the gospel, is he done with Israel? And he answers, no way. May it never be. But we'll find out in the next few weeks that the Israel that's in God's future is not a racially distinct people it's a spiritually distinct people who come to know their Messiah. There is a, an Israel by name and by circumcision. And then there is a real spiritual Israel. In fact, he says not all Israel who call themselves Jewish are actually Israel. But we'll get to that in a few weeks. So, the apostle is going to demonstrate to these Italians reading this letter in Rome that God has and God must keep his promises to Israel. And when you go back into the Old Testament, you find promise after promise after promise after promise after promise after promise after promise to Israel. Let me just highlight a few of those that you know very well. There's the Abrahamic promise, or we call that the Abrahamic covenant. A covenant was a promise made between two parties. There were responsibilities on both sides. That's what the promise is actually, uh, promises actually mean. This promise made to Abraham was in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. You know it well. Now, the Lord said to Abram, this is before his name was changed to Abraham, 
Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. So you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's quite a statement. From your loins, in you, all the families of the entire planet will be blessed. He describes that even further in Genesis 15, verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. Now we find out that there's real estate involved. There's, there's geography involved. There's the land of Palestine involved. To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt. And this is important. As far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Kadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Gigashite and the Jebusite. You say, what are all those ites doing there? It's really important. You know what he's doing? You know how you do the, um, the little... Uh, uh, paint by numbers or you have the dots where you, you go from one to two, two to three, three to four, and at the end you see, a, you see a picture. He's identifying these groups and he's going, draw this picture. This is the land. This is the boundaries of the land I'm giving you. I will give you this land. So when you look at the Abrahamic promise or the Abrahamic covenant, there are three main features. The promise of land, the promise of descendants, and the promise of blessing and redemption, ultimately the promise of the Messiah. Then there's what we call the Mosaic Covenant, which actually could probably be called the, the Sinaitic Covenant. The Sinaitic Covenant is uh, based on the obedience and, and disobedience of how the people would respond. It was, we call it the Mosaic Covenant, even though it wasn't given to Moses, it was given through Moses to the, the people of Israel. You could call it the Israel's National Covenant. That's in Exodus 9 through 20, 19 through 24 was made at Sinai and God made some promises that he would be their, be their God and they would be his people for all time. Then you come to what is called the Davidic promise or the Davidic covenant made to David. This one is a big one because that's where God promises to give David and the nation of Israel a seed from David who will be greater than any king Israel ever had, even David would be the Messiah. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is that great covenant. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, God talking to David about his death, I will raise up, from your, uh, raise up your descendant after you. This is Solomon, who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. We know that Solomon is the one who built David's house, his vision for the temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Wow. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. What does that mean? Because we know Solomon died. I will, set a, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me when he commits iniquity. I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I look away from it, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. And then here, 2 Samuel 7, 16. He says, tells to David, your house and your kingdom 
shall endure before me forever. How long? Forever. And your throne shall be established forever. David died and Solomon died. What's he talking about here? He's talking about that great promise of a Messiah. Then there's the Palestinian covenant, which is given in Deuteronomy 30, which really is pervasive all throughout the the Old Testament. It's the promise of the land that God will give them to possess. This is what gives me great assurance that God will one day restore a spiritual, Messiah-believing, Jesus-honoring group of Jews whom he'll call Israel to himself who will worship and honor the king in Jerusalem literally one day. Deuteronomy 30 verses 1 to 5. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call up to mind all the nations and all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. This is talking about the Babylonian, the Assyrian captivity, and ultimately when they would be scattered like they are today. And you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I commanded you today and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore to you from restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Hmm. All the peoples, not just Assyria and not just Babylon. That's the whole world. If you are outcast at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will bring you home. He'll bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. So let's make no mistake. God made a promise to Israel that one day they would dwell in that land forever, unhindered by enemies, regathered by himself, and enjoy the blessing of God. That was not 1947. When Israel became a nation in 1947, that was not this. And this is when the book of Revelation, and we're going to, by the way, I'm going to say probably 10 times this morning, we're going to get to this because this is just Paul's introduction to the next three chapters. One day he will bring them back as a a mother chicken brings her, her little chicks back, put his wing over them, This, 1947 was not that because they didn't come home to the Messiah. They just came home to a land. And did they come home to a land that was unhindered and unmitigated? How's that worked out for them Been trying to possess the land? Do you know about the Gaza Strip? Do you know about Palestine? uh, Palestine? Have you been watching the news? If that's this promise, God is not a good promiser or a promise keeper. So that's not this. And then there's the great promise. The great covenant in Jeremiah 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Now, now that immediately makes us think, what's the old covenant? What's new about the contrast? What's new in the contrast with this covenant with the old? The next three chapters of Romans will tell us. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah... I love that he gets the northern and southern kingdoms in there, the whole nation. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day which I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. They broke it. I stayed faithful. 
But in this covenant, which I will make, let me tell you about your side, Israel. In this covenant, I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, they will be my people. This is, listen to this, the characteristic of this kingdom. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. That's an odd thing. There will come a time when no one will say, You need to know the Lord. For they will all know me, he says. From the least to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's talking about that great millennial kingdom that's the prelude to the eternal kingdom of being saved in heaven with Christ forever. All of these promises given by God must be fulfilled to a group of Jewish believers. The point Paul is going to make in the next three chapters is that though God has extended salvation to Gentiles, none of his promises to Israel have been canceled. Why is that important? If God will not keep his promises to Israel in the past, why in the world should you and I ever believe he would keep his promises to us in the present or even in the future? If God made these promises to Israel and then changed the, the, the rules and changed the game later, what makes us think he won't do that to us in the future? Listen, how we understand Israel, their past, their present, and their future has everything to do with how we understand God's credibility, which has everything to, un, to do with how we understand our own salvation. God's credibility is on full display, and frankly, it's at stake in how we understand Romans 9 and 10 and 11. This is really important real estate in our Bibles. In fact, it's so important that you and I understand the past and present and future of Israel that Paul said, I'm going to explain this to you. Remember, largely the, the, the group of believers in Rome were, were probably Gentiles with some Jews scattered in. It was so important that, that Israel and God's promises to Israel weren't forgotten that he takes three full chapters and explains that to people who didn't have any Jewish context and says, let me explain to you how important this is. And he also explains that to a group of Jews who said, hang on a second, is God through with us and his promises to us? What did chapter 11 verse 1 say? May it never be. So we're going to begin this, this, chap, this section where Paul does. There, remember, chapter 1 through 8 is a section. Chapters 9 through 11 is a section, which ends in chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, worship. So the grand conclusion to these three chapters of deep theological um, musings is offer yourself as a reasonable service of worship to the Lord. Well, we need to know what that means in chapter 12, verse 1, which all of us love. We love that verse, but this is the introduction, three chapters of introduction to that, that great admonition. Let's begin where Paul begins, with the dilemma of Israel's unbelief. The dilemma of Israel's unbelief. If you're Paul and you're sitting in, in the first century, if you're a new believer, if you're in Acts chapter 15 where this was sorted out, 
you have to constantly be saying, well, where are we in God's redemptive program? Where are we on God's calendar? And why didn't Israel receive the Messiah? It couldn't have been clear. Aaron read Isaiah 53 this morning. Did you hear how clear that is? How can that not be Jesus? So Paul is wrestling with why in the world does Israel not believe? As a nation, there were Jewish believers. He addressed them in chapter 2. But why does Israel as a nation, why do they reject the Messiah? We'll come in a, in a few weeks to that that parable where Jesus cursed the fig tree, came back the next day and all the leaves had withered and he said, this is Israel? What does he mean by that? Well, what is the current state? Well, Paul answers all that and he wrestles in the beginning here with the dilemma of Israel's unbelief. Let's understand that together by looking at two clues for understanding the dilemma of Israel's unbelief. Two clues for understanding the dilemma of Israel's unbelief. Now, as we go into this this chapter now, verse by verse, I just want to tell you that for the next three chapters, this is going to largely be a theology class. But it's not something we can skip, want to skip, and there are deep theological implications for these deep theological truths. Two clues for understanding the dilemma of Israel's belief. The first is in verses 1 to 3, Paul's broken heart. Let's just look into Paul. The first clue for understanding this problem that Israel doesn't believe is to look into Paul's broken heart. Let's break that down even further. The first element of that broken heart is a genuine passion. A genuine passion. Verse 1. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Does that not, coming out of Romans 8, does that not kind of alert you? This is such a change of tone. From the glory that if God is for us, who is against us, we are more than conquerors. Everything is great in Christ. And then he, everything turns, the music changes in, in chapter 9. Why does Paul have to say, I'm telling the truth, I'm, I'm not lying? Why would he have to give such a self-defense? Well, he's answering the critics who would charge him with being, are you ready for this, anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish in his understanding of salvation. In his passion to evangelize the Gentiles, for which he's already told us, and he'll tell us again, he's been called as a missionary. In his passion to tell the Gentiles that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, offers them salvation, in that passion, his critics would say, well, you've just forgotten about the Jews. Now, just as a little footnote, we'll see this in the coming uh, weeks. Paul could not be accused of that. You almost feel sorry for him because God tells him over and over, you're going to be my, my light to the Gentiles. You're going to be my missionary to the Gentiles. Paul, I want you to do Peter's going to go to the Jews. Paul, I want you to go to the Gentiles. So in every city, he shows up and he goes to the synagogue. And they beat him senseless, leave him for dead at Lystra in a derby. And he ends up with Gentiles and they receive the gospel. And he goes to another city. And he goes right to the synagogue. And he says, this is the Messiah. And 
And they beat him up for it. They persecuted him. Paul could hardly be accused of not having a heart for the Jews. But he anticipates that pushback. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. He provides his readers with an oath. Positively, it's rooted in his relationship with Christ. I am telling the truth in Christ. That's our, our vernacular. We would say, I swear on a stack of Bibles. I know James says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. It's not what Paul's doing here. He is saying, my integrity is rooted in my relationship with the living, resurrected Jesus Christ. I am telling you the truth in Christ. And the truth in Christ includes the offer of salvation to Jews and Gentiles, to anyone and everyone who will believe. Negatively, he says, I mean, he could have left it there, but he says, I'm not lying. Wouldn't it have been enough just to say I'm telling the truth? But he goes on, he says, I'm not lying. Why would he say that? Because he knew that some people would say, I don't think you're telling the truth. I don't think you're lying. He takes the words out of their mind and their mouth and says, I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth. And then he appeals to his own conscience and the Holy Spirit. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. You know, you can, you can do a lot of things that trick a lot of people, but you typically know the truth about what you think, believe, and say. Paul says, you know what? When I close my eyes on my pillow at night and I live with my own conscience, I know I'm telling the truth. The Holy Spirit testifies with me about that truth too. You say, well, tell truth about what? An inconsolable burden, secondly. He's telling the truth about his heart for the Jews, his heart for Israel. An inconsolable burden. I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth. The Holy Spirit, Christ, are testaments to this. That, verse 2, I have a great sorrow and I have an unceasing grief in my heart. Now comes this concern. Paul's anguish is his response to the reality that Israel has rejected their promised Messiah. If anybody understands this, this was Paul, who also rejected Jesus as the Messiah, who stood by as an accomplice to murder with Stephen and Acts 6. He understood that people would and have rejected the Messiah. But he uses these two phrases, great sorrow and unceasing grief. In my heart, literally in my bowels, in my thinking, in all that is me, my, literally my stomach churns over this. I'm never settled. Why? Because he wanted his, we'll see in the next verse, he wanted his friends to know Christ. Now there are two immediate implications of this for you and for me. First of all, do you have that inconsolable sorrow and unceasing, it means it doesn't end, unceasing grief about people who don't know Christ. Now you have to be careful because Paul also talks about his his unending joy to the Philippians. I 
There's nothing more joyful than being a Christian. He, he could sit and smile and laugh and shout and sing about his joy in being saved by Christ. And that was real and that was genuine, but there also existed parallel and congruent without any contradiction in his heart and unending, unceasing grief that comprised a great sorrow. In fact, you could say they were connected. The greatness of his joy matched the greatness of his sorrow because the, great, the objects of his sorrow didn't have the greatness of his joy. Do you have that for unsaved family and, and friends? Does it bother you? Can, can we just ask, does it bother you that you know people who are going to go to hell and you have the answer and you haven't shared that with them, or if you have, they haven't responded. I think a Christian should at the same time be the happiest and the saddest person on the planet. There's a second implication here, and that's, do you have a burden for the Jews? Paul even said that the gospel came, say it with me, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. Even though he's beaten up every time he went to the synagogue, he still went to the synagogue. That's where he started. My family and I live in a predominantly Jewish neighborhood. We have an ongoing burden for those who live around us. My wife and several of you ladies have been able to serve even the synagogue over there, the tem their uh, temple worship, as they would call it, to be able to babysit them and to build relationships. Let's, let's be a church that loves Jewish evangelism, not at the expense of evangelizing anyone, but certainly with it in the center bullseye of our focus. That leads him to not only a genuine passion and inconsolable burden, but a wistful yearning. This verse is almost too much. And it's been wrongly interpreted by many who have not just simply read it, by the way. He said, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ, separated for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now we find out the object of his sorrow, great sorrow, unending grief, and that is his his kinsmen, according to the flesh, his brethren, this is the Jews, these are Israelites. The language here in verse 3 is as important as it is specific. Look very carefully at what he says. He says, I could wish that. You cowmen is the Greek word. It means he understands that that wish isn't even possible. Paul is not saying, if I could give up my salvation I would for you. That would demean his salvation. What he's saying is, if that were even possible, I would consider it. Because of my love for you and because of my knowledge of how wonderful salvation is. I could wish it. Not I wish it. I could wish it. Look further at the text. It says, I could wish that I myself were accursed. If you have a New American Standard, it says separated from Christ. That word separated is actually not in the original. The, the, the original 
translation should go something like this. I, I could wish that I myself, by the way, it's intensive there, it's reflexive, I, not just I, I myself were cursed under the curses of the covenant from Christ. That changes everything. Christ is the judge. I could wish that I was a recipient of the curses that are associated with rejecting Christ Jesus the Messiah, if that were even possible. The object is very clear. It's not hard to understand. My brethren, those are his Jewish relatives. My kinsmen, according to the flesh. By the way, the term according to the flesh almost always means according to the circumcision. That we had the sign of the flesh of the circumcision. We were God's chosen people. You know, it reminds me of Moses' words in Exodus 32. I just thought immediately of this passage when I, when I read this. He's, um, remember where Exodus 32 is, um, the first part of the chapter is the, the golden calf incident where they had such an incredible blasphemy. They said, make us a God who will go before us. And Aaron says, here, he makes this little cow, this gold cow, and he says, this is your God who led you up from the land of Egypt. This is Yahweh. This is, this is God. Not a new God. This is the one who brought you from the land of Egypt. Moses comes back, confronts them. God judges them. Remember what he says? Moses says, but now, God, if you will, forgive their sin. And if you will not, blot me, please blot me out from your book which you have written. Moses knew he wasn't going to be erased from the book. What he was saying is, I want the people I love to be with the God who loves me. That's what he was saying. Paul's salvation was precious to him, but so was Israel. Paul was not a spiritual racist. He's accused of that by some. Did you know that? That here he's accused of being a spiritual racist by saying, I want, I want my brethren to be saved. Why did he say, I want everyone to be saved? Well, he says that other places. He was a believer in God's promises to Israel, and he was wrestling with the dilemma of their unbelief and thinking, okay, he's setting up the, 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 uh, the rest of the chapter, and in chapter 10 and 11, he's setting up the question, okay, if they don't believe, and God made these promises, how is, going to be, how is God going to be faithful to those promises with a group of people who are ethnically chosen by God but don't believe? How do I reconcile those Seemingly unreconcilable realities. How is our passion for those who we love who are not believers? How is our passion for the Jews? Well, that leads us to a second clue for understanding the dilemma of Israel's unbelief. Paul begins with understanding Israel's unique privileges. You can look at those first three verses, and that looks at Israel under the present curse, and you look at this, these verses four and five, and that looks at Israel, Israel's past under God's blessing. 
When he talks about his kinsmen and his brethren, it leads him to talk about these people in more detail. He considers Israel's unique privileges. And there are eight of them. First of all, receiving God's adoption. That's their first privilege. They received God's adoption. Who are Israelites? To whom belongs the adoption of son? First of all, notice this is Israelites. Have you noticed what he's been calling this group of people for eight chapters? Jews. That was the post-exilic after Babylon that began to be called Jews. Why this shift here? Why, why does he change it to Israelites? Because when you say Israelite, you instantly refer to God's covenant with Israel. He's going back to covenant, to promise language, to God keeping his promises. Who are Israelites? These Israelites, by the way, to whom belong the adoption as sons. Now, I know what you're thinking. Hang on. Christians are adopted. We just studied that in Romans 8. And you're right. So what, in what way are Israelites adopted as sons? Well, let's think about the precious reality of adoption. Adoption means you choose someone with no prior connection, at least blood-wise. I know uncles can, can adopt, but that typically wasn't the case. That was actually, you were obliged to do that in the Old Testament. Adoption was someone who you didn't, you weren't related to. It's creating a relationship with someone who you have no reason to except your own kindness. He did that and has done that to Christians. But remember that he did that to Israel as well. We, we just sneak a peek, sneak a peek. We're going to go ever so fast here. Down at verse, oh, where is it? Um, verse 15, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In other words, he adopted Israel for no other reason than, he loved, than that he loved them. And he loved them for no reason of their own, but just that he chose them. And that's going to serve as the foundation for the rest of the chapter. We'll come back to that. Just know that he adopted them. They received God's adoption. Secondly, their letter B, he, they received God's presence. Now, this is kind of a, may not be obvious at first. He says, They've also received the glory. It's the glory. It's very specific glory. Not just glory, but the glory. It's a reference to the presence of God given to Israel in the cloud, which was called his glory. That Shekinah glory, that cloud. Exodus 40, verse 34. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on him. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Verse 38 says that cloud became a cloud of fire at night and a cloud of some kind of smoky recognition during the day. It was recognizable. What was that? The glory they had. Listen, this is incredible. Israel had and enjoyed, through all their wanderings, Israel had and Israel enjoyed a physical proof of God's presence. It's kind of funny that we all want that. And Israel had that, and they still rejected his Messiah. Thirdly, they received God's covenants. We won't say too much about this. We'll have lots more to say in the coming weeks about this. We have already talked about it specifically, the Palestinian covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the um, Davidic covenant. Those are special covenants that we've already looked to and discussed. We'll come back to that again. 
Fourthly, receiving God's law. We talked about this extensively in chapter 2. They were recipients of the law of God. The apex of Israel's blessing was to hold, possess, and be stewards of God's law. And back in chapter 2, Paul spoke of Israel's great privilege of possessing the law without actually living it out. They also received, it says, the temple service, literally the service. What does that mean? Well, if you read Joshua 22, 27 and 1 Chronicles 28, 13, you find out that this service were, was understanding how to know, uh, understanding how to come to the temple and know how to worship. God gave them the regulations of how to approach him. It wasn't specific, come and worship me. He gave them very specific regulations and they, they considered that a privilege. They didn't have to guess at to what pleased God. He gave them the service. Here's how to worship me. The sacrifice, the sacrificial system, how the priests approach me, what you do, what you don't do. They understood what God expected and required to give him worship. What a privilege. Six, they understood God's promises. They received God's promises. Receiving God's promises was a privilege and the promises now, if you want to boil all the covenants and all the promises down, it boils down to three major categories, three major promises. Promises of a land, promises of a people, and promises of a coming Messiah. All the promises fit under one of those categories. Promise of a land, which we've already discussed. He's going to give them Palestine back. Very specific geometry, very specific geography, very specific parameters. And of a people, they will be his people, the apple of his eye, and the coming Messiah. Next, the receiving of God's examples. This is, this is really, really interesting. Whose are the fathers? These promises and covenants, these privileges are the fathers. So he's given us these fathers to know about. Who are those fathers? Those are the, those are the characters in the Old Testament. He's given us a written record of people who have responded to God rightly and a record of those who have not done so well. All these promises were given to fathers who are not only recipients, but examples and bad examples sometimes of faithfulness to God. And that's all a buildup to the last privilege that presents the dilemma of Israel's unbelief and from whom? The Jewish nation. They received God's Messiah. And from whom is the Messiah, the anointed one. That's the Greek word for Messiah. The Christ. According to the flesh, God blessed forever. There is an entire semester of theology in this verse. We won't take that time this afternoon, I promise. The crux of what Paul is getting at is this verse. He wants to unpack that in the rest of the book of Romans, that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the one who should have been anticipated and received when he came. If you go back to Romans 1 to, 1 to 7, the good news of God, verse 1, is Jesus in verse 3. He's the gospel of God. It says, according to the flesh. You know what that means? According to the circumcision? Jesus is the Jewish and anticipated by Israel Messiah. That's what he's saying. 
He's sovereign. It says who is overall. And then we get to that, that fun theological moment. This is so, can I just teach you a little bit of Greek? Not a lot, just a little. You can see it in the English. You can see it a little bit clearer in the Greek, but you can see it nonetheless. There, the Greek language is very elastic in places. And so, so is English, and you can see a hint of it here. The question is this. Did, did, did Paul just call Jesus God? Look at what it says there. From whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, comma, God blessed forever. So is that God blessed like a hyphen, like he's blessed by God forever? Or is God the antonym, the, 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 uh, uh, the, 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 the rephrasing of, of Jesus? The synonym, rather. Here's what's cool. Can I say that? About the Greek language. It's wonderfully unclear. Beautifully unclear. Now, this is why that's important, Paul. I mean, you could take it as, uh, if you take kind of the commas out and the parenthetical phrases, whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who's overall, God, who is blessed forever. And you'd be right. You could also take it as, Christ, according to the flesh, is overall, who's blessed by God forever. But here's the key. Do you, we believe that God inspired every word of the Bible, right? If, if God, the Holy Spirit, writing through the pen of the Apostle Paul, wanted to make sure we didn't mistakenly think Jesus was God, man, this was bad grammar. This was so poorly written. But he wrote it this way so we could very well take it exactly as it implies. Wow. He's God. Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, is God who is blessed forever. And after that, you know what you say? What's the text say? Amen. So be it. Exclamation point. High five. Or as my friend in South Africa says, five high. Okay, we'll do that too. <laughs> what do we take away from this? So much. And here's the thing. I was so troubled by trying to get through all this. I thought this was going to take a few weeks. Every one of these points, he explains more in the coming through chapters. So we're going to come back to it all. If I sound repetitive in the next few months... Paul's repetitive in the next few chapters, okay? Because he keeps just circling to say, you, get, you, do, you do understand, you get it, don't you? Don't, don't be mistaken. There should never be any anti-Jewish sentiment in the church of Jesus Christ. One of my heroes, Martin Luther, very anti-Semitic. And I, I know the reasons why, and I understand that it doesn't justify it. I've been to Germany, and we uh, stood in Wittenberg there. I remember at the corner of the church where Luther preached, they, instead of gargoyles up in the corners of the, of the building, you know what there is? Pigs. And that was to be an intentional offense to the Jews. That's not how we want to be. Praise God for all we learn from Uncle Martin. <laughs> but we're not going to go there. This passage 
should cause us to be just drawn into the vortex of Paul's sorrow that we know their Messiah. We know their Messiah. And we can tell them who he is. And secondarily, it allows us to see the burden of people who love God and want that love to be expressed with those who don't. What an evangelistic example Paul is here. Have a great sorrow. Have an unceasing grief. Do we have that for our friends, our neighbors, our family, the guy who gives us the, uh, the, the, uh, the Starbucks? Do, do, do we have that burden? Or do we bow the knee to embarrassment? What will they think of us? That we're crazy about Jesus? Is that so bad? The dilemma of Israel's unbelief was that they had a lot of revelation from God and didn't respond. How much revelation do we have from God? And how should we respond? Let's pray. So blisteringly convicting, Father. I see Paul just exploding with joy over his salvation, and we see him here in great sorrow and unceasing grief over his brethren who didn't know Jesus. Oh, please, embed those same two emotions and feelings in our own hearts. Give us a passion for the gospel that extends to the Jew first and also to the Greek. While your heads are bowed, our prayer room is going to be open in a moment. John and Sherry will be over there. If we can talk to you about your own response to Christ, we'd love to. If we can pray with you or talk to you about our church, anything, please don't leave without making that available to yourself. Father, now dismiss us with thoughts of your heart for your people and for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.